and welcome to New Books in Geography. I'm your host, Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography at Syracuse University. Joining me today is my colleague in the Geography Department, Matt Huber. Matt is author of Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital. He is one of the experts in the discipline of geography on energy in general and oil in particular. At Syracuse University, he teaches an introductory course in environmental studies, as well as more advanced classes in political economy and energy and society. Matt is also among the vanguard of a new generation of geographers, critically examining the way natural resources are produced, distributed, and consumed. His book is partly a history of oil in the United States over the past century. But more than that, Lifeblood is a story about the role of oil in American society and how it has helped shape American economics and politics. Lifeblood was the subject of a special session at this year's Association of American Geographers Conference, where Matt was also awarded the James Blunt Award from the Cultural and Political Ecology Specialty Group. Lifeblood is a fascinating book, and I'm delighted to have Matt Huber here for this podcast. So, Matt, welcome to New Books in Geography. Thanks so much for having me. You opened Lifeblood by discussing the way oil has erupted onto the American political scene in the past decade, mentioning such things as delegates chanting, drill, baby, drill, at the Republican convention in 2008, and former President Bush saying that Americans are addicted to oil. And so both then and now, it seems that oil is in the news a lot. But I wanted to know, how did you become interested in the topic of oil in the United States? Um, well, first of all, it's very kind of personal in many ways. The book is, you know, it doesn't appear on the surface, but it's kind of autoethnography of of my life growing up in, in the suburbs of St. Louis. And from a very early age, I really remember kind of complaining to my mother about just how spread out everything was and how it was very yeah. difficult for, for me as a young child to walk anywhere where there would be public space and other people really congregating. Uh, and even, even with a bicycle, I was not, I mean, we were like four miles from any sort of public square. Um, so really the car dependence and auto dependence and sense of um, privatism of suburban life really undergirded a lot of my upbringing. Um, and also, you know, I started um, grad school in 2002 in sociology and um, that was a time where oil was very much on a lot of people's minds in relation to climate change, but also the Iraq war. And I'll never forget a moment when um, just after, um, I believe it was uh, Press Secretary Ari Fleischer announced on television that Operation Iraqi Freedom was underway. Um, and so the U.S. invasion had begun. It was mid-March. I was actually visiting my brother in Florida, um, and I was really upset. I'd gone to the big protest in February and um, really thought that that was going to stop the war. <laughs> but um, that was not the case. <laughs> no. Um, so then I, I was at a restaurant. I saw the news, and I was really sort of very depressed. And then I remember we went. Um, we ended up at a gas station, actually. And I just remember seeing a big one of those massive gasoline tankers pull in and then start unloading um, the gasoline into the, the underground um, storage areas and just having this kind of moment of, of feeling like this moment here in Florida, this gas station is somehow connected to this geopolitical um, struggle and really what I believed at the time and still believe was a very unjust, um, illegal uh, invasion by the United States of Iraq. So, um, but from a more 
scholarly perspective, uh, right about the same time, I became really fascinated with the literature around political ecology and um, in particular, the literature around urban political ecology, which was starting to kind of blow up around that time. And a lot of scholars were looking at the geographies of water and cities or geography of forests and parks and things like urban gardens. And um, the more I started uh, thinking about oil and how it, 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 it itself sort of shaped the, the spatial form of cities, and actually was at the time really keenly interested in the politics of the gasoline pump in general. A lot of um, that was very early on. People were starting. You're starting to hear this kind of populist outrage about high gasoline prices. Yeah, that was kind of my, yeah, that was kind of my entry point. I was really fascinated with that discourse of kind of the the, the entitlement of American consumers to cheap gasoline. Um, and so I was trying to think through how to think cities and politics and ecologies through the lens of oil, and that's kind of where I started. Okay. So you, one of the things you'll talk, you talk about in the book, and we'll talk about more in the interview, is its connection between oil and politics. But also a major thing that you do in the book is look at the connection between uh, oil and capitalism, seeing that oil and capitalism are actually intimately related. Could you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah. Um, for me, you know, coming from a, a Marxist understanding of what capitalism is, one of the the basic things that, you know, Marx tends to repeat himself. <laughs> and one thing he repeats a lot over and over again is that the central social relation of capitalism is the relationship of wage labor and the creation of a pool of, of wage workers who really, in order to survive, have to sell their labor power in exchange for a wage. Um, so I've always approached capitalism through that central social relation of wage labor. And um, but but looking at through the, um, the lens of oil. Um, as I'll probably talk about more in detail uh, later, um, I, I became interested in the Great Depression as this real kind of not only economic crisis of capitalism, but really serious cultural um, legitimation crisis of capitalism because of it was so clear to most commentators and most um, policymakers at the time that this system had totally failed in terms of providing the basics for people to live their lives, which at the time were obviously jobs and wage labor, but also just providing the semblance of a, of a stable living. And um, so what the story to me um, of the, the Great Depression and the New Deal was kind of creating, um, but in response to that crisis, creating new geographies of life and living that um, weren't reducible to oil, but oil became very central in making those types of lifestyles possible. Yeah, you talk um, about oil in American life in the, right. in the American way. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I actually did. Um, I, forget, I don't know how to pronounce this, but you do these Google uh, like engram searches yes, yes. for particular phrases over history, and it turns out the the phrase. Bit, uh, the American way of life, if you do one of those searches, and who knows how reliable they are, but it really explodes in the 1930s. Um, previous to that, you heard a lot of the American way, but of life kind of got added as um, a certain vision of what American life is all about. And following the politics of the 1930s, you see that really the category of life is central. I was reviewing lots of speeches and debates during the 1936 election, actually. And you see 
sort of FDR and, and others sort of, they're always sort of talking about how what our political party do, uh, platform is going to do is going to create the conditions so that people can have the chance to live a sort of stable, comfortable life. And, and, and in fact, the, the idea of the American way of life um, started to show up in those speeches. And how this relates back to capitalism, again, is um, I sort of argue that in order to rescue capitalism ideologically, you had to create these really um, this sort of a, this sort of compromise between um, capital and labor so that um, what labor got in this compromise was um, the capacity for higher wages through labor reforms, the National Labor Relations Act. You had all sorts of housing programs, which really expanded homeownership as a real possibility for a larger spectrum of society. Um, and you also had the government active involvement in regulation of the economy, providing a social safety net, and also really investing in massive amounts of, of infrastructure that like roads and bridges and things like that, that became yes. the basis for this geography of everyday life centered around single family suburban homeownership and automobility. Um, and to me, getting back to the original question, is that um, capitalism, if, if it's really centered around this wage labor relationship, um, what, what that compromise did was create these ideas and geographies of freedom in the realm of what geographers and others call social reproduction. The yeah, realm what does of, that mean? That means all the kind of stuff outside the workplace that has to happen in people's lives to reproduce them to um, you know, the, 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 the sort of orthodox Marxists reduce, re reproduce them so they can go back to work the next day and be exploited by capital. But what it really means for most of us is how we think of life beyond work, you know, how we think of our leisure time, how we think of um, uh, this space, um, literally, and also this time where we really see ourselves as free from work and from what in those times was really the drudgery of kind of hyper-tailorized Fordist forms of of production and work. Um, but the, the sort of um, interesting thing is that that compromise didn't really call into question the capitalist control over an organization, um, organization over production, which is kind of the prerequisite of, of capitalism is you have a class of capitalists who, who have sort of dictatorial control over production and then they organize production so that it's relentlessly focused on profit and accumulation. Um, so, you know, the genius of the New Deal was kind of rescuing capitalism by giving um, a certain spectrum of society all these freedoms and ideas of freedom that were really kind of quarantined in this realm we call life and leisure and um, and everyday reproduction. So uh, with that is what you're partially uh, arguing is that oil helps perpetuate all of that, that for that compromise to function, you need oil in one sense to in many senses to really power that. Absolutely. So if this whole rescuing of capitalism was based on this idea of a new American way of life that I want to emphasize was not available to everyone in the society. In fact, it was very exclusionary um, towards, um, you know, um, African-Americans, migrant farm workers. A lot of people were sort of left out, out of a lot of these labor um, deals. But insofar as the American way of life began to become equated with this idea of a, a, a single-family detached suburban house and um, privatized transportation in the form of an automobile, um, yes, oil became absolutely central to literally powering that arrangement. Um, not only powering, as I go on to show in the post-war period, you know, 
oil starts to be, it's not just one product, it's what we call petroleum products, the multiplicity of petroleum products that are refined from a single barrel of oil start to become saturated in, in people's everyday life become kind of central to geographies of social reproduction, whether that's chemicals that under underwrite the food supply or plastics in the home or even the construction of the home itself via vinyl siding and all sorts of stuff. So oil became kind of materially and, and energetically sort of central to this, this material production of a very resource and energy intensive way of life. So you look at a lot more than just simply oil as a source of power, powering our cars and powering trucks and powering our society. Um, there are chapters in the book that look at the role of, uh, of, of petroleum products uh, is in, in plastics and things such as that. So what, um, what aspects do you look uh, at that, about kind of oil and plastics and whatnot in everyday life? Yeah, and in that chapter, chapter three, again, it's kind of trying to focus on the post-war period. And I became really interested in the fact a lot of times nowadays when we talk about oil, we talk about it as a kind of singular thing. You know, the oil, there's wars over oil, there's oil states, there's um, oil-based transportation systems. But um, what's interesting is crude oil in itself is like um, pretty useless as a thing, as a substance. And that's in order in order for crude oil to become useful, it has to be refined. And actually the, the, um, you know, the very nature of the refining process in particular, something called fractional distillation is where you're heating up the substance and it actually fractionates into a multiplicity of fractions, heavy and, and the lighter ones sort of uh, are boiled off at the beginning and those can be captured to be, um, they actually, the lighter ones are what what create things like plastics and chemicals. And then the middle, the middle fractions um, become things like motor fuel and gasoline and whatever. Um, but really what was interesting to me is how the very process of refining necessitates a multiplicity of products. And if you go back to the early days of the oil industry, they're very early on trying to sort of as good capitalists often do, like we're, we're producing this one uh, product that we know we can make a lot of money off, but what about all these other products that come out of the refining products? How can we make money off of off of these things that were previously seen as waste products and how can we sort of make the entire barrel of oil as this multiplicity of fractions profitable to distribute to consumers. And um, so fast forwarding to the post-war era, I became really interested in looking at these old advertisements where it was very clear that the oil industry is trying to construct this narrative of what I call the unavoidability of oil, where Literally, wherever you look, there, you yourself are dependent on a petroleum product. And um, so, again, it's not just the fuel in your car. I have this one ad where it, where the, it, it calls attention to the lubricants that um, are in the machinery of the car, of the, of the engine. It calls attention to the synthetic uh, petroleum-based tires that are on the car. It calls attention to the asphalt itself <laughs> that the car is driving on, which comes from the heavier bitumen fraction of oil. Um, and so it creates this kind of assemblage of oil products where you literally can't escape it. Um, so insofar as the post-war period was about creating this new vision of, of life and everyday life based on suburban automobility, the oil industry was very keen on sort of reminding consumers that um, they were sort of inescapably linked and dependent upon this one resource. 
Through, throughout the book, uh, you mention these ads that you use. And one of the, I think, great things about the book is all the images that you have from old advertisements, the cover of old news magazines or, or magazines that are talking about oil. And so what drew you to those images and why did you decide to use them in the book? Um, at the time, I was just reading a lot of books in American studies and cultural studies, and I just noticed that a lot of books do do that. They <laughs> they rely on a lot of images to tell the story they want to tell, and, and not just you know historic. There's a lot of historians I was reading at the time, and certainly there's a lot of books that don't really you know it's all text, and that's and there might be some graphs or some tables, um, but it just it struck me as like wow, like these are something that can really enrich a story. So um, why not um, use them? Um, it does, you know, it takes getting your hands dirty a little. I mean, I would go into the stacks of libraries where particularly the libraries that still keep their old uh, bound periodicals on the stacks, easily accessible. Yes. And you just pull off a few off the shelf and you spend an afternoon kind of glancing through them. And it's kind of, amazing how rich <laughs> like yes. if you look at life magazine from the 1950s i mean on every advertisement you're going to find something rich that sort of illustrates the nature of post-war american politics i mean it's it's, it's like madman era advertising executives really liked the oil industry and its products yeah yeah well yeah as a watcher of madman um you know part of that show about you know don draper Part of the mythology of him is that he really kind of understanding something deep about American culture. And insofar as advertisements are the corporations kind of attempt to project what they think uh, culture and society ought to be at a particular moment, I find they're very useful. I mean, obviously, you have to take them for what they are. They are they're not necessarily um, uh, representations of empirical reality. They're corporations trying to sell their products in particular ways. But they can be reflective of, of certain cultural ideas at the time. Uh, later in the book, you look at the energy crises of the 1970s, the oil shocks, the long lines of the gas pump. I'm old enough to remember uh, President Jimmy Carter wearing a sweater in the White House and calling us all to turn off our lights and to be use energy more efficient to share and sacrifice. So how did the energy crises of that time affect or maybe not affect Americans' views about oil? Um, well, what I tried to do in that chapter is not so much look at how it changed their views about oil, because I feel like a lot of historians have looked at that, essentially going from a period where people didn't question the availability of oil. It was sort of this culture of abundance in the post-war period, and then a very brutal um, imposition of scarcity in the 70s. But what I try to do is look at how discourses of um, how they, how Americans kind of thought about the oil crisis itself and how that, how those ways of thinking kind of reinforce larger political shifts that were happening at the time. So um, I was really drawing from a lot of historical literature recently, looking at the 1970s as the kind of key decade where the United States politics shifted from a kind of New Deal Keynesian um, kind of consensus, uh, left liberal consensus towards um, a rightward shift towards what we would call neoliberal um, forms of free market ideology. 
And so um, basically what these larger shifts were based around were these, these really these neoliberal critiques of what we now call like big government, neoliberal critiques of unions, uh, and also neoliberal critiques of any kind of monopolistic corporate power. Um, and the key for me for understanding the larger politics of, of the energy crisis was to also link those politics with the larger politics over the rising cost of living and inflation, which very much the energy crisis was linked to because people sort of thought rising oil prices and lack of oil availability was making everything cost more. So those things were unconnected. But the larger explanation that people sort of and policymakers kind of understood inflation as a as a economic process that itself was being generated by kind of the pillars of the Keynesian compromise again of the 40s 50s 60s which were government spending on things not only like um, LBJ and the Great Society but also on war the Vietnam War and this idea that as government is spending too much money it's leading to um, monetary inflation but also unions and you see um, it's just it's rampant in the discourse over inflation in the 1970s was that essentially greedy unions sort of demanding wage increases are pushing prices up for everyone else. Um, so that, again, that neoliberal kind of critique of inflation really linked a lot to what I saw as the larger political and popular explanations of the oil crisis. And what I did was look at some polling data and look at a lot of letters that everyday folks had sent to newspapers. And I found a lot of boxes of letters sent to the energy czar under Nixon and during this 1973 oil embargo. And the thing that I saw over and over again um, in the ways in which people were experiencing and explaining the energy crisis was this focus on these forces that were unfairly intervening in a market for their own gain. Um, so whether it was OPEC, which again was a cartel that sort of very clearly announced themselves as a political force in the market trying to raise oil prices for their own state benefit. Um, but also I, I found if you look at the polling data, Americans were even angrier at um, the oil companies, which again were constructed as monopolies um, that um, were sort of screwing the everyday consumer out of their hard-earned money by jacking up and gouging um, prices. Um, and actually, neoliberal theory and practice is really as critical of monopolistic power as it is of government power. Um, but it didn't help that the government itself was very much involved in the oil crisis by putting price controls on oil and creating all sorts of people always remember the, the, the regulations that were kind of state by state basis, but sometimes people would have to, you know, um, uh, only get gas on certain days of the week, dependent on what their, um, um, uh, their license plate number was or whatever, but all sorts of government interventions in the economy to deal with the oil crisis. Well, the neoliberal explanation was that the more government gets involved in the price mechanism, the more shortages, the more gas lines you're going to have. Mil people like Milton Friedman sort of picked up on this and really ran with it. And Milton um, Friedman is seen as really one of the ones, an economist from the University of Chicago, who really championed neoliberal ideals. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do is kind of a lot of people have worked on those those higher level neoliberal ideas coming from Milton Friedman or even someone like Ronald Reagan. 
But to try to understand how everyday explanations and sort of popular explanations of the oil crisis reinforced this idea that what was wrong with the oil crisis was that the, the economy was fundamentally unfair and the market was fundamentally rigged um, um, for the interest of these particular forces, whether it be OPEC, oil companies, or big government. And so logically, the kind of solution to that form of critique and explanation of the oil crisis is to reassert competition in the marketplace and to create a truly fair uh, free market economy. And I even found quotes from people like Ralph Nader saying we need to break up the oil monopolies and reassert competition. So whether you left or right, sort of the, the, the logical explanation and, and solution to all these problems was to actually bring freer and fairer markets and assert more competition, which, again, really fit with the kind of neoliberal ideology. And then it's no surprise that eventually at the end of the decade, it's Ronald Reagan who came into power with slogans like, we don't have a shortage of oil, we have a surplus of government, and sort of blaming all all the oil crisis on government intervention in the market. And his, his solution was that if we just free the market, um, we'll all be okay. Uh, you talk about this growth of neoliberalism beginning in the 1970s. And there's your book, I would really see, is also part of this resurgence of, of, a, of a lot of scholarly interest among historians and geographers in the 1970s, seeing this really as kind of a pitiful decade, particularly in the growth of neoliberalism. So you not only have the ascendancy of neoliberalism starting at this time, but also the ascendancy of what you call, and possibly using this from phrase of other scholars, but the, the really growth of, of what you call entrepreneurial life. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, um, I sort of drew that from reading um, Michel Foucault's lectures on neoliberalism that he gave in 1978 and 79 at the College of France. And he really isolated what he called the enterprise form as the central kind of figure of neoliberal policy and ideology. And essentially, it's just this idea that society is best run if it's a multiplicity of enterprises, each sort of on equal footing, and there's an even playing field amongst them, and they're sort of evenly competing with each other. And that really fits into this idea of a free market of, of entrepreneurial um, vision. So what I sort of the big connection I made between that was the way in which um, the, ge- the very geography of suburban life created this this kind of um, geography of very privatized atomized entrepreneurial subjects each sort of feeling increasingly as time goes on I think a lot of what undergirds suburban politics is this feeling that um, someone's life and success and their home and their car is is itself a product of their own individual competitive, hard work ethic and entrepreneurial tenacity. And what I tried to argue is that feeling itself was reproduced out of a very privatized geography where, again, you're leaving, you're living in single family detached homes, you're driving in privatized forms of transportation. And you start to think that your life itself is this sort of singular privatized affair. Um, and what I try to argue is that, um, Really, you know, again, we need to go back to the New Deal to understand the social policies that made that geography of, of mass generalized suburbanization possible. 
Um, but what's really interesting is how, um, as time went on, uh, as decades went on, more and more of those suburban geographies became hostile to the very, the very kind of government policies that actually underwrote their entire existence, like the housing policies and the infrastructural, the highway system. Obviously, suburbia is a totally, you know, dare I say, socialist enterprise that's undergirded by government intervention. But more and more as people live their lives in this kind of privatized way, I argue that this this idea of entrepreneurial life really became this populist basis for neoliberal shift, which, again, didn't really, I would argue, didn't really get underway on a societal level until the 1970s. And you could argue most people agree that by 1980, the election of Reagan is kind of the moment where you could say this this neoliberal shift had become hegemonic and then become really powerful. Um, but what I try to suggest is that it really took decades for that not only the neoliberal um, think tanks and movement uh, intellectuals to build their rationales and to build their critiques of Keynesian ideas, but it also took decades of kind of this expanding geography of suburbanization, which became the kind of populist, popular basis for a lot of these political shifts, right word. Um, moving on to some more contemporary issues, there are many environmentalists and some in the media who talk about the threat of peak oil. Uh, and you in this, in your book, and maybe in some of your other writings, talk about peak oil. But do you think peak oil is a, is a real threat? Is this a real issue? Um, yeah, it's, uh, you, I mean, we are going to reach peak oil at some point. Um, uh, and in fact, is pretty much a, a fact that we in the United States reached peak oil in 1970. So that actually happened. Yes. We're increasing our oil production so much lately that some people suggest we might overtake that 1970 mm-hmm. peak, which would be really stunning. Um, but the real question is when the peak is going to occur at a global level. And there's a lot of uh, people thinking that it was that it had happened or was on the verge of happening in the mid 2000s. And then we had a massive global economic crisis, which led to less demand for oil, which led to a kind of stagnating of production to service that demand. But as the economy has picked back up, we've seen production go up again in the last few years, uh, most dramatically actually in the United States. So um, the peak oil did not happen when a lot of people thought it was. And so now the debate is, is it going to be in five years? Is it going to be in five decades? Um, And um, I certainly would agree that that, um, it will happen eventually. But, um, but I would, there's a whole lots of directions you could go with a critique. I mean, it, it, um, uh, I often am very critical of the peak oil sort of literature, particularly the popular literature. Um, it kind of creates this sort of monolithic understanding of American culture as if everyone's kind of these zombie oil consuming masses that are sort of spoiled and, and sort of live these excessive lifestyles, which I think not only sort of ignores how central suburbanization was to, again, rescuing capitalism and the Great Depression, but it also ignores that we're really living in a period of time that's characterized not by excess and spoiled overconsumption, but actually 
what um, you could see is very serious economic insecurity, increasing inequality, increasing debt, increasing wage cuts. So Americans are not feeling uh, like they're overconsuming zombies these days. Um, but the other critique you could very, I mean, very, on a very basic level of peak oil is that really the problem is that there's too much oil on the planet. And we're seeing that now with the development of, of crazy um, unconventional oil deposits and, and the tar sands in Alberta and other very carbon intensive forms of oil that um, really the real problem uh, that we need to focus on is not really so much oil scarcity, but the fact that there's still too much oil on the planet. And if we burn it, it's going to lead to um, intensified climate change. So let me um, pick up that thread. You know, of course, there's some people in America, especially environmentalists, who would like us to use less oil, be more energy efficient. That might be because they feel that we're running out of oil. But uh, even more so, I would say, because of the role that greenhouse gases from the burning of fossil fuels, such as oil, play in climate change. Um, but despite all these kind of concerns about oil, at least from environmentalists, our oil consumption remains stubbornly high. So based on what you've learned reading this book, how, what advice might you give environmentalists and others who want to cure our addiction to oil? Um, that's kind of that's kind of one of the biggest focus focuses of the book is we haven't really come to grips yet with um, understanding our uh, our current addiction to oil is is not really explained very well amongst a lot of think environmentalist and also just sort of left-wing explanations. Essentially the story of why we continue to consume too much oil is basically that the big oil companies have corrupted the political process and have ensured that we will continue on this path um, of, of oil dependence. Um, but basically it, that ignores the kind of, again, this larger popular um, support and ideas of things like freedom and of things like um, family and home that are wrapped up around these suburban ideals that really undergird a lot of every people's everyday existence. And more to the point um, that those everyday geographies of kind of neoliberal populist ideas about, you know, taxes are too high. Government intervention is bad. It's those, I would not only say that oil kind of helped power and shape those forms of politics, but in terms of getting us to consume a, a lot less oil or to actually push us towards a renewable energy transition, as Naomi Klein is arguing in her book, it's, it's very clear that in order to do some sort of transition like that, we need massive government policy um, changes and shifts and a huge involvement of the public sector in shifting our economy, which is... You, don't, you just need to look at history to know that any major energy shift often is is done alongside of massive government intervention. And in fact, that's what I try to talk about in terms of the origins of our oil addiction was a lot of government policy. So if we need um, a massive involvement of the public sector and really dramatic interventions of government policy into the economy, the real problem of our continued oil addiction is our politics, Right. It's yes. our, our politics of distrust of, of government intervention and distrust of taxes and belief that 
again, um, everyone should sort of be left alone and left to their own atomized sort of privatized lives. Um, and I think, again, that the left and environmental environmentalists really need to come to come to tougher grips with that 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 larger drill baby drill populism that undergirds a lot of a lot of the the resistance to environmental policy. That's it's not just sort of oil companies and oil elites kind of rigging the system. And I also the other thing I'd say is that we often tend to think about energy as just another one of those single issue pol- policies or politics that we need to focus on. And you might care a lot about healthcare, or reproductive rights or um, civil rights and energy, is just another sort of policy domain. But what I tried to argue in the 1930s is that what happened in the new deal was never announced as an energy policy. It was really announced as a massive reorganization of the economy and everyday life and society. And that's actually what we need to, to, create a new energy economy is a massive um, social reorganization, restructuring of the economy around these new energy sources. And you're not going to be able to achieve that via some sort of movement or social movement or um, kind of struggle around the single issue of energy. It has to be around the larger structure of the economy itself. So you're continuing to work on uh, issues related to uh, to oil in fossil fuels. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Yeah, I'm starting, or I'm, I guess I'm now in the midst of a new project on um, the petrochemical nitrogen fertilizer industry. Um, this comes out of a lot of what's in the book about getting really interested in these industrial um, ecologies and geographies of refineries and chemical plants and um, really trying to understand um, not only those industrial facilities as, um, you know, certain polluting forces in, in the environment, which they are, but also to understand them as a central node in the kind of overall metabolism between society and nature. And in particular, to try to complicate the way in which we think about resource consumption um, or just environmental consumption in general. We, when, we, when we think about the problems of overconsumption, we often focus on, you know, people like us, everyday consumers. We need to change our light bulbs and buy hybrids and all that stuff. Um, but that ignores the massive amount of resource consumption that happens in these industrial facilities. Um, so for nitrogen fertilizer facilities, they are consuming like unbelievable amounts of natural gas, um, which actually... Are, is used as a feedstock to, for hydrogen that they combine with atmospheric nitrogen to create synthetic ammonia, which is the basis of our chemical fertilizer industry. And that might surprise many people that don't realize that our fertilizer that grows all the food and the wonderful things that we eat actually comes from fossil fuels in some respect. I think a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, and what really struck me is, again, in this case, natural gas is not a fuel source. Actually, in these plants, they use it for fuel, to for their furnaces and for energy to create a lot of heat processes. But they also use it in a tremendous amount as a material feedstock for, um, again, a source of hydrogen. Um, essentially, if you want to make ammonia... So by material feedstock, you mean an ing- basically like an ingredient. It's a key yes. ingredient in making so, this fertilizer. 
Yep. So yeah, I've, I've become a sort of um, a novice chemist <laughs> in this process. Yeah. And uh, essentially, uh, natural gas, as you might know, is methane, which mm-hmm. is CH4. So it's just by looking at the numbers there, you can see it's a very rich mm-hmm. source. Of, you, they used to do this process from coal, by the way, and they still do in, in China and other places. But in the United States, it's almost completely switched to natural gas. And that CH4 is... Um, they do this process called steam reforming of it, where they take the H away from the C, yeah. and then they take the and then they take who knew, but the atmosphere, the air itself that we breathe is eighty percent, or actually like seventy eight or seventy nine percent nitrogen. Yes, but pl- plants can't use that atmospheric nitrogen. So what they have to do is take the nitrogen from the air, combine it with the H from the natural gas, and create NH three, which is ammonia, and that's literally the building block of. Uh, of the fertilizer that is so central to our food system. That's excellent. Well, I really look forward to reading your next book on that. So (laughs) for today, I'd just like to thank you for joining us, Matt, on New Books in Geography. Thanks very much. I had a great time. So that was Matt Huber. He's the author of Lifeblood, Oil, Freedom, and the Forces of Capital, and it's available in paperback from the University of Minnesota Press.